And so this sermon today is on the second sign of the divinity of Christ. Uh, and as you know, we're in a series in which we're pinpointing the seven signs that Jesus is the Son of God, that God gave to the Jewish people and effectively gave to the world to indicate that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the second sign relates to the cleansing of the temple. Uh, and it has a theme that should be familiar to all of us, especially Americans, and that is the cost of freedom. The cost of freedom. And Jesus now is indicating that he's preparing to pay the ultimate cost of freedom. Uh, and that freedom is to deliver us from sin and deliver us from death, as he will cleanse uh, the temple. And what you see here is Christ coming to terms with the failure of institutional Judaism. As you see, the old covenant effectively crumbling, uh, not because it was defective, but because the people refused to follow it uh, and, and did not submit to it. And so here it is. He comes into the temple. He comes from Cana, and he now comes uh, to Jerusalem, and he comes into the temple. And so he will see there, we will see that Jesus, as he walks into the temple, this great paradigm of religiosity to the Jews, uh, and he's preparing to observe the Passover. So you can appreciate that's the highest holy day uh, for, for a Jew. He's preparing to do that, and he walks into his father's house, as he calls it, and he sees the money changers, the merchandise, completely filling it. It looked like a large store where everything was for sale. Uh, and he was absolutely outraged and insulted that his father's house could be desecrated in this way. And so what we know about this, it was not about him setting up a worldly uh, kingdom. It's about him setting up a spiritual kingdom. But at the same time, he's pinpointing the flaws of our religiosity, the flaws, the, the flaws of the Jewish faith, the, how, how institutional Judaism had failed and how it was failing right here in the very temple that should have elevated God in every way. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is the failure of the old order. That's what this is about. That's what these signs all indicate. The old order has failed. The old covenant has failed. You have not lived up to it. You have not submitted yourself. And so what was old is coming to an end. It's all crumbling, and Jesus sees this right here. Uh, recognizing that there will be a judgment and one day this will all pass. And so the, the Passover, you need to understand in context, was a pilgrimage in which uh, every male Jew was required to participate. They had to travel to Jerusalem, wherever they were. That's why there were more than a million people in Jerusalem, and you can imagine what that had to be like. I was there, the streets are very narrow. It had to be unbelievably crowded. Uh, and so they had to go to the temple, and they had to use an animal sacrifice in order to atone for their sins. Now, it was not feasible for the pilgrims to take the sacrificial animals with them, and so they would buy them before they came into the temple. But it was never intended that they buy them in the temple. It was intended that they would buy them on their way to the temple, outside of the temple, that they would purchase these sacrificial animals. Uh, and so it was, Jesus was not upset 
that the animals were being sold, he would not have had a, an issue with that if it had been done outside of the temple. But in fact, what was happening is over time it had eroded. And so these people, the Jewish elite, the Jewish leaders, had brought them into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles. And so when you went in there to worship, all you heard was the bleeding of sheep. The bleeding of sheep and the money changing going on. Can you imagine what that had to be like? Here it is, the highest episode, the highest issue of religiosity for a Jew. And this is the desecration that's taken place. That's what happens when we fall away from God. This is what happens when institutional Judaism did not live up to the prescriptions that God had given them, but instead had fallen into the world. And so you see it, the buying and selling of merchandise in the temple. Uh, and Jesus was visibly enraged, visibly enraged and visibly upset. Uh, and so he was upset really for two reasons. Uh, first, he was offending that, that this buying and selling in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, made it impossible for Gentiles to worship. Well, the Jews didn't care about the Gentiles, but God did, because God had sent Jesus to the whole world, not to just the Jewish people, but to the whole world. And now the Gentiles could effectively not go into the temple and could not worship because their area was filled with animals. Uh, Jesus was outraged, outraged that they had done this uh, to prohibit what God had intended. And, and here it's, it showed the heart of the Jewish elite. The Gentiles were required to stand at a distance uh, even when they came into the temple. And so they didn't care. They didn't care that they couldn't worship all right, because they had no regard for them whatsoever, and you know that as we've studied their mindset and their practices. They had no regard for the Gentiles, but God did, and Jesus did, and his heart was broken with what he saw. And so Jesus wanted the Gentiles to be invited, to be a part of the kingdom of God. Well, how could that happen when, in fact, the temple had been blocked where they would normally worship? The second reason, you see, that Jesus was offended was, was that the presence in the temple created a carnival-like atmosphere. Can you imagine if you came to church here and were ready to worship and instead a carnival atmosphere took place? How you couldn't get down into a proper respect of spiritual condition to God? How you couldn't worship him? And Jesus was offended. Jesus understood people needed to come to an area where they could bow in worship, in adoration to the Father. That's what the temple was about. From the day that God had ordained even the tabernacle out in the desert, there was a, set, a sense of solemnity and adoration that God indicated had to take place. And I would say this is a, a, a note to us today. How do we come to worship? When you come to worship and you sit in a chair, are you, are you preparing your mind to hear what God has? Are you bowing in adoration to God, or are you in your mind fulfilling all these other issues that crowd into your head? You can't do that. You see, Jesus has made it very clear. Jesus is removing all of the items in the temple that prohibit us to worship him. And he's doing that today for us. 
the temple of our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is an important lesson for us today. And so as Jesus comes across on this, Jesus, the man who many saw was a meek person, a meek person uh, who constantly preached about peace and love. Look, look at our Jesus here in John chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus was and is always a man's man. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Uh, in doing this, Jesus restored the order, the solemnity, and access to his father's house. Jesus would pay the ultimate price for this as he confronted the Jewish elites as to what they were doing and defiling the temple. He would ultimately be put to death because they could not stand. They could not stand that this usurper from Nazareth would come in and confront their evil. And now the disciples watched in amazement as Jesus drove the merchants uh, from the temple. You can imagine what their reaction with, as their, their leader, their teacher, comes in and flips over tables, one after the other, and with a cord of whips, drives out the cattle and the sheep. And here's the thing. There are temple guards in station here, and nobody stops him. How about that? You think the presence of God was on him? Nobody stopped him. That's an important thing for you to understand as Jesus does this, as he's exhibiting effectively the fact that he's the son of God and the power of God, and they had the wherewithal to stop him, and yet nobody lifted a hand as Jesus cleans it out, cleans it out. What a powerful testimony this is from God, how God will not abide the reckless use of his temple. He will not do that. And also, it's a lesson to you, because now you are the temple of God. You understand? You are the temple of God, and God doesn't want you to defile that temple. He doesn't want you to walk away from those things that are proper and pure. He wants you to preserve the temple just as Jesus did then. It's so important. And so the disciples, as they're seeing this, remember a prophecy from the Old Testament. And that's what this is all about, because you see all of these signs relate back to the prophetic words of the Old Testament. And that's found in Psalm 69, verse 2, and it's a phrase uttered by David, who had suffered greatly. He was pursued for 17 years by Saul, uh, and even though he had been anointed as as the king of Israel, and yet despite that, besides the fact that he had worshipped and honored God, he was still being pursued. Look at what he says here in verse 2. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's the zeal of King David, recognizing that he couldn't abide what had happened to the kingdom of God. He couldn't abide the evil, and yet, as he stood up for God, that zeal that he had for the things of God caused him to suffer, 
caused him to suffer as he was even sought to be put to death. And this relates to the broader context of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came, to make everything that was old new, to correct that which was in error and put it right, uh, and to elevate the house of God to what the house of God should be. Now, Psalm 69, if you get a chance to read it in full context, talks about the cost of serving God with unwavering devotion. God expects you to worship him with unwavering devotion, not changing from day to day, but to be consistent, irrespective of what you face, irrespective of the tides, irrespective when people harangue you or persecute you. And there you see Jesus doing this, knowing that as he confronted Judaism at its heart, he would pay the ultimate price. And though David said this here 700 years before, 800 years before, he said it because he knew that he was suffering because of his servant service to God. Look at just prior to verse 9. David says as follows to God, Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. When you stand up in devotion to God, you're going to, you're going to suffer. People in your family who are not there with you are going to repudiate you. There are friends who will, dis, who will disassociate themselves from you. There will be a plethora of things that come down the pike because you are standing for God. And Jesus did this at the very epicenter of Judaism. And so David is expressing the unwavering cost of devotion to God, uh, and talking about the humiliation and suffering that he, that he would suffer because of his love for God. And G Jesus would also suffer, just as David would suffer as a suffering servant. The one whom David really typified, uh, who was in the very lineage of Jesus, the coming messianic king would suffer great, greatly because of his devotion to God. When the disciples witnessed this, they witnessed the sacrificial devotion to God that Jesus had in cleansing the temple. And notice, he didn't ask them to help him. He didn't need any help. He went in there under the power of the Holy Spirit and cleaned that nest of vipers out himself. That's you, Jesus. That's power under restraint. That's what Christ gives us. He was no meek man. He was no meek. He was a powerful man, but power under restraint, and, and indicating here what it meant to be the suffering, suffering servant. And so Psalm 69 spoke prophetically of Jesus uh, in a powerful way. Uh, and Jesus personally felt the pain when his father was being dishonored. Uh, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's how Jesus acted as he was personally receiving these reproaches because he was the son of God. Now, the Jewish leaders never forgot what Jesus did. They never forgot. And I'm sure they're... Uh, in their private councils, they said even then, and this is at the beginning of his ministry, this guy.
has to go. How dare he? How dare he come in to our temple? And how dare he do this uh, and, and interfere with what we want and interfere with our economic advantage? Isn't that what it's always about? Money. Our economic advantage. And so you can bet that the seeds of the crucifixion of our Lord were sown right there at that moment. And so when Jesus cleansed the temple, he revealed his role as God's suffering and humble servant. That's what this did. This is what you see in Jesus. He's revealing the role of the suffering servant of God. He demonstrated to the disciples, and that was his primary audience, that he must render absolute devotion to his father, that he could not stand in the presence of evil and desecration, uh, and that the cost of freedom from sin for the disciples and for you meant Jesus would die. And they made it up in their minds that that's what would happen. And so the disciples were not the only people that witnessed this second sign of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, most likely, the temple authorities themselves, the religious elite, you can imagine how quickly this must have gone on and discussed. They were clearly offended by Jesus. How dare he do this to us? Who is this guy? We are the Pharisees. We are the leaders. This guy's a carpenter from Nazareth. Who does he think he is? And so you see it in their heart when you look at John chapter 2, verse 18. And you see then, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? I can't say it in a sarcastic enough tone. I need to use my Edward G. Robinson voice. See here, Moses. Well, effectively, what they're saying to Jesus, who has given you the right to do these things? Who do you think you are? And then you see the absolute arrogance of these people. They then demanded that Jesus give them a sign. In other words, do a miracle uh, to prove that you have the authority to take such action. Now, the irony of what they asked for is that the very cleansing of the temple was the sign. That was the sign authenticating the authority of Christ Jesus. The fact that the temple authorities demanded a sign exposed the wickedness of their heart. They weren't interested in a sign. They were interested in humiliation and suffering and persecution. They knew that their greedy, corrupt practices had gone on for years and they commercialized the temple. Uh, and so they had wrongly practiced the religion uh, and they obstinately refused to admit it. And so they demand a sign. Here's the point. When Mary, basically, at the wedding, tried to force Jesus to perform a sign, he wouldn't do it because of his mother. And similar, you think Jesus is going to do it now uh, because these pagans effectively, these so-called religious elite, asked for it? Of course he would not do it. Of course he would. Instead of giving in to their man, the demands, Jesus responds very differently. And it's what really sets the predicate for why this is an important sign. He responds to the temple authorities 
with a spiritual riddle. And Jesus often did that. And this is in John 2, verse 19, where Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? What? Are you nuts? It took 46 years to build this edifice, and you have the nerve to think that, it's de- that if we destroy it or it's destroyed in three days, you will build it up. But you understand, they didn't understand anything that Christ said. He was speaking on a much more fundamental spiritual level. Uh, and if you would study the Old Testament day after day, time after time, it was clear that in three days, Christ, God, would do something dramatic. And that dramatic would be that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And that's what he's talking about here, uh, raising his temple, the body. After you would kill me, God will raise me from the dead. Uh, And so it referred to Jesus suffering and death. Uh, But the Jewish leaders were blind to this deeper meaning. So they replied with sarcasm. And then this is John 2, verse 20. Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? What blind people. What blind people. Uh, pray to God that we never find ourselves in that situation where God is speaking to us and we don't understand what he's saying. The Jewish authorities could not see that a greater king and greater architect stood before them. The fact that the temple was absolutely uh, irresponsible to what Jesus wanted. It didn't matter. Jesus wasn't interested in physical buildings. Uh, Jesus was interested in correcting all of the errors that had gone on. Everything that was old is now going to be changed. Every error that was in Judaism is being changed. As Judaism, formal Judaism, is crumbling, crumbling and failing and is evidenced by the temple. Jesus has come to clean it to correct it, to make it new. Uh, And so John, in writing the Gospel of John, and understand that John is writing the Gospel about 45 or 50 years after Jesus uh, would die, says in verse 21 about Jesus' statement, but he spake of the temple of his body. And so there's the point. They didn't understand what he meant. Frankly, neither did the disciples understand what, they, what he meant. It would only be after Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead that they would come to understand. Jesus' death made the temple obsolete. You got that? Obsolete. And in fact, 40 years later, the Romans would finish the story as not one stone would be left on another. Jesus doesn't care about the physical accoutrements. Jesus cares about your heart. Uh, and this is critical. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
You who have accepted Christ, and that is the reason why we take Holy Supper so seriously. You have become the temple, the embodiment of the Spirit of God, all right? We don't look for it in a, in a physical building. Yes, we're so pleased that God has given us this building, but we don't worship this building. We worship the fact that Christ is here, that the Holy Spirit is here in this building as we have this message and this sermon, and we come together. God is alive in this building. His presence is palpable. His presence is in your heart. And so I ask you to think about how you're living as Jesus cleaned out the temple. Have you cleaned out the temple of your heart? Or are there things in your heart that still sit there and reside there and percolate there? Because this is the day to do it. This is the time to do it, especially as we approach the Holy Supper. Look, in the final analysis, the Jewish elite were not interested in hearing from God. They weren't interested in any signs that Jesus could do uh, because they would not listen. They had made up their mind what they wanted to do, and they didn't want any interference in, in terms of what they had done. They had wrapped up their outlook and perspective and didn't want any interference. Uh, if there was anything these rulers were not prepared to hear, it was that the temple would be destroyed. How dare you? How dare you say that? And so even today, Jesus shows us the rebellious hearts of people and points out the need for them. You see, this is what happens. You know, you, you, there are people who have a desperate need for Christ, but they don't want to hear. They don't want to listen to what God has. Reflect on this and, and make it your memory and your heart to bring yourselves to account for what God expects from you. Jesus was telling the temple authorities that he had to sacrifice the temple of his body, of his body, so that he could systematically build his church. This is what Jesus was doing. He was washing away the detritus of Judaism, the failure of Judaism embodied in the temple, and his death would absolutely start the rebuilding of his church, fulfilling the prophecy found in Psalm 118, verse 22, where it says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. The stone that they refused to acknowledge has become the headstone. And so the death of Christ would effectively mark the end of the stone temple. Sure, it hung around for another 40 years, but that effectively was a dead man walking. And look at Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rock, and the rock rent. Jesus had, had provoked the attack and the political attack and the religious attack on the epicenter of Judaism, the temple. And at his death, the very curtain, this 60-foot long temple curtain that was six inches thick is rent in half from the top to the bottom because from now on, you wouldn't need a human high priest to go in. Now you would be able to go in because Jesus was your eternal high priest and would be praying for you. That's what he's about. That's what this message is about, understanding the nature of what he did. All of this is encompassed here in the cleansing of this temple. 
All right? And this becomes an important thing to understand. The clock begins to tick down. Jesus is going to go to the cross because the religious elites cannot stand him. They cannot abide him. He has to come to an end. They want to see him put to death and destroy him in every way. Uh, and so Jesus, Jesus would begin rebuilding his church. And one of the ways he rebuilds the church is to give us the Lord's Supper. That becomes the rebuilding of the church as we together join in the body of Christ, which we're going to do at the end of this message. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You too have become part of the temple of Christ Jesus. You've accepted Christ. He has, he has put his spirit in your heart. You are saved forever. Make no mistake about it. You are part of the spiritual temple of God. And so what we learn here is that after this day, this, the disciples learned that they had to go back to Scripture. They had to go back because they realized that they're dealing with the Son of God and that the things that he's dealing with had been prophesied. None of them had understood what the three-day prophecy was, but they would come. Once Jesus died, they would come to understand that. And so God wants us to approach him through Scripture. He has spoken. He has spoken for thousands of years. It's in the Bible. But do you read it? Do you listen? Do you pray over it? Uh, do you come to terms with it? Because he's speaking to you. Uh, and so in his second sign, Jesus revealed another aspect of the glory of God, that his purpose was to obey the will of the Father, even though it meant terrible suffering. That's Psalm 69. I'm here to obey my Father, even if it means I have to suffer. And the Apostle Paul spoke about this, spoke about what it meant to die on a cross in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And there he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus went voluntarily. He died for you. He died for me. Uh, and so in securing our deliverance, it's not the end of the story here in the temple. The end of the story is the resurrection of Christ three days after he's crucified. And Jesus never said to you, earn this, earn this, what I've suffered. Instead, what did he say? Receive this. Receive this gift, this free gift of salvation. And so although it cost Jesus everything, everything to secure your life forever, to secure you from sin, to give you the right to be with God himself. He did it and gave it to you for free. Salvation is God's free gift to us. We need to recognize this and honor this, especially so in this day. Salvation is free. Never forget what Jesus did, what he did that day in the temple, the cost of freedom is dear. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for, for your commitment to us, for your gift to us, Lord. 
how the prophecies have come together over thousands of years and how we see the suffering servant in evidence at the temple, as the temple is cleaned out, the very edifice of Judaism. As Judaism had failed, and as the old covenant had failed, now everything was being made new through Christ Jesus. Lord, put this on our heart. Let it resonate with us today, especially as we celebrate your communion in every way. As we put this before, before your throne, in Jesus' precious name, amen. And now we're going to celebrate communion. I ask you to bow your head as we, we do this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we sit here as if we were back 2,100 years ago in the upper room as you were bringing an end, a formal end to the Old Covenant, as you're bringing an end to the Passover and instead instituting a new sacrament that would take your church uh, through the centuries and bind us together as you would demonstrate you're giving your body so that we would have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that we honor you in everything that we do. We put this in your name. Amen. And so if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to participate uh, in this communion service. Uh, it's important for you to do that. This ordinance is for believers. Uh, now, each person has a responsibility to determine their fitness to do this before God himself. Uh, it says there uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that wine. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. What does it mean to examine yourself? What's the examination part? Well, here's the thing. You're saved. You've come to accept Christ. Your, your security is eternalized. You will be with God. But as you walk in this world, dirt comes up on you. It can't be helped. We walk in an evil place. We live in an evil place. And so Jesus is saying, Paul is saying here, that God says, examine yourself before you take communion. Look at your heart. Look at what you're walking around with. What warts are there? What aspects of your life are not right? And one of the things that God has really spoken to me about uh, in this issue is a lack of forgiveness. Some of you are walking around and, if, and still have a lack of forgiveness. God looks at this as having a sinful aspect. All right? So when you come to take communion, you need to say, Father, help me. Help me to forgive Help me to erase this problem. Help me to walk with you in the way you want me to be, Lord. Look, this is the kind of thing that God is saying. Let a man examine himself. That's the examination that's important here. Look at the words that Paul used to describe communion in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. So then whoever eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Let's understand something. Nobody is holy. Nobody is righteous. But the examination process is designed to bring you to your knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to be the man and woman you want me to be. I want to be your servant. I want to walk with you. I want to impact the world. I want to do this as I share your body and blood. Look, he would go to the cross. He actually ended the Passover in this supper. The Passover would never after, ever after this, be effectively given by God. It was ended because there would be no more animal sacrifice. The once and perfect sacrifice of the Son of God would end this forever. And so when we come to communion, uh, in a very serious way, we examine ourselves and we ask God to wash us completely uh, and to forgive us our sins because of the, set, the shed blood of Christ. This is why Jesus could say in John 14, 6, no man cometh to the Father except through me. You understand that? No man, no one is going to go to heaven. No one will be with God unless you come through Jesus. That is your passport. And you have that passport. But now God wants you to clean up your life. And so let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads as we take the elements together. First, take the wafer. As we give thanks to the sacrifice of the Lord, you can all hold this up. We're going to take it together. Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same manner, take the cup and raise it as we will drink it together. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. And then he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. You are now giving testimony to a lost world of who you are. You are joined with Christ. We are joined together as the church united of Christ through the world, not with any denominational name, but sitting under Christ Jesus. This is why we do the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you for this great gift. I thank you for the chance to celebrate your life and death with these other Christians. Lord, help us, help us to recognize our failures and our flaws. Help us to recognize what a great God you are, that you would die for us. 
Lord, let us remember this Lord's Supper. Let it resonate in our hearts. Let, it, let us commit ourselves today to serving you in an even more powerful way. Let us walk out of here, Lord, with the responsibility of knowing that you have died for us and that you expect us to live in an even more glorious way. Bless our church, protect them, and fill them with your spirit as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.